We seem to have an icy fascination with death. We do not wish to encounter it, yet we long to know exactly what it brings for us. In fact, throughout most of recorded human history, death and what lies beyond it has been a central cultural and religious focus. Whether you're studying the culture of ancient Egypt or modern religious texts, you cannot deny the profound focus each seems to have on death. And perhaps more specifically, what comes after it? We fear death. And the more we become aware of our mortality and our advancing years, the more we seek comfort from the idea of an afterlife. And the more we seek confirmation of its existence. It's a need as old as time and a need that many have attempted to fill and profit from for just as long. There is absolutely no shortage of people, practices, and gadgets which claim to do this very thing. Contact the dead, proving that our consciousness lives on. This is, in fact, the very basis behind the spiritualist movement. Spiritualism is essentially about communicating with spirits of the dead, proving that there is an afterlife. Now, even though during its height, in the mid-1800s and early 1900s, the movement was full of controversy and scam artists, it still took America and Europe by storm. The popularity of spiritualism rose in America after the end of the Civil War, when so many had so suddenly lost loved ones, and when so many were seeking answers and closure. Spiritualism soon grew in America from a means of comfort to an absolute sensation, and it soon deeply embedded itself in the popular culture of the time. It was during this time that America became obsessed with what we would now call the paranormal. From spirit photography to seances, interest in the paranormal was highly fashionable. In fact, during this time period, some of the biggest some of the most well-paid celebrities were mediums, those who claimed to be able to summon and communicate with spirits at will. They were known to sell out entire theaters, and many of their acts were indeed quite theatrical in nature. Some would be able to summon full-bodied apparitions, which would walk amongst and interact with the audience. Others could produce ectoplasm, which often took the form of either a mist or something similar to flowing silk, which often was what it exactly was. Now it will probably come as no great surprise that many of these mediums and their acts were frauds. 
In fact, it was something that plagued the spiritualism movement. It was almost a con artist's dream. There were so many marks willing to shell out considerable sums of money for the slightest bit of comfort that their loved ones still, in some way, lived on. There were so many grief-stricken, so many desperately seeking answers and proof of the existence of an afterlife, so many that could be easily manipulated with a few easily executed parlor tricks. In fact, the sheer volume and ruthlessness of these spiritualist con artists is what led famous magician Harry Houdini on his mission of spiritualism debunkery. For Houdini, the mission was personal. His own mother had been ruthlessly taken advantage of by not just one, but several of these fraudulent mediums. And it was thanks to the efforts of Houdini and others who had had similar experiences that many of the famous so-called mediums were publicly humiliated and exposed as frauds. And due to the massive media attention given to those exposures, spiritualism, by the end of the 1930s, had begun to fall out of fashion. Now, despite the controversy that plagued the movement, spiritualism definitely left its mark on our culture. In fact, if you enjoy the paranormal, especially ghost hunting, many of our most well-loved tools for spirit communication and paranormal investigation have their roots in spiritualism, including one that may surprise you, the EVP. If you are familiar with or have ever watched a show featuring ghost hunters of any kind, you are more than likely familiar with what an EVP is. It's almost the common trope of any ghost hunting show. In a dark room, a paranormal investigator holds out a small digital recorder and they ask aloud question after question as they hold their device out in front of them. Then, often, when they replay the recording, an inexplicable, faint, and strange voice is heard, as if it's responding. An EVP. Electronic voice phenomena, or more commonly known by the acronym EVP, is a sound found on an electric recording that's believed to be the voice of a spirit. These voices can be intentionally captured but most often are captured by complete accident. Many parapsychologists describe EVPs as being very short in nature, usually in the form of a single word or a short phrase. And they're more common to happen during instances of white noise, such as static in the background. It's believed that during an EVP, a spirit or ghost can communicate with the living by manipulating the energy around them to create sound. You see, since these spirits no longer have a body and therefore vocal cords, they cannot actually talk. 
Instead, the theory goes that they use their energy, whether that's psychic energy or working with the energy around them, to manipulate electronic recording devices and create sound waves that resemble their spoken voice. Which is perhaps why it's so incredibly rare for the person making the recording to actually hear that disembodied voice during the recording session. In fact, in about 99% of the cases, the voice is only heard during playback. A lot of the times, the voice that comes out is quite soft, barely a whisper. And sometimes the voice is louder, but it might sound distorted, like there's static in the background. However, sometimes the voice is loud and clear, but it can have a sing-song tone to it, like it's singing out what it wants to say. Paranormal researchers classify EVPs into three different categories, Class A, Class B, and Class C. Now a Class A is a good one. A Class A is an EVP in which the spirit voice is loud and clear, perfect sound. Class B is an EVP in which the sound of the voice is clean, but it might not be heard very well without headphones. Class C is an EVP in which the spirit voice is either very soft or distorted, and it's typically only heard well with headphones, and the sound will often need enhanced using audio software. Now, it's important to note that it does not matter what class of EVP you have, they rarely ever last more than a few seconds. And paranormal researchers who study EVPs typically use one or more of several different devices to capture the sounds. Some use old cassette recorders, some use those small handheld digital recorders, some use a recording app on their phone or tablet, and some use a device called a spirit box, sometimes known as Frank's box. If you've ever watched a ghost hunting show on television, you are probably quite familiar with the spirit box. That's that little device that makes that sound which they use to capture real-time spirit communications. Now the spirit box might sound like it's this really complicated device, but it's actually quite simple. In all complete actuality, a spirit box is just a broken radio. It is an intentionally damaged radio. And here is how it works. The part of the radio that makes it stop scanning when it finds a station is disabled, or better words, it's broken. That means that the scanner will continuously scan through radio stations, constantly jumping through available frequencies, staying on each frequency for only a fraction of a second. And the idea is the spirit will manipulate the frequencies to speak through it, or it'll play various transmitted sounds from random stations 
to communicate its message. Now, though EVPs didn't really gain a lot of mainstream popularity until the 1970s, these ghostly messages have been around for a long time. We always think of EVPs, these spirit voice recordings, as being kind of a more modern phenomenon, but it goes back a little bit further in history than you might think. The discovery of the EVP is often accredited to two different individuals. The first is American photographer and paranormal investigator Attila von Zele, whose name I probably just butchered. It's Attila who supposedly began capturing strange voices during their investigations while using a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. And Attila caught their very first spirit voice in 1956. Now the second individual is Friedrich Jurgensen. Jurgensen was a Swedish painter and film producer. And the story goes that in 1959, Jurgensen was out recording bird songs. But later that day, when he rewound his tape and listened back to it, he heard something strange over top those cute little chirps. He heard a voice. It was faint, a little garbled, but Jurgensen recognized that voice. He believed that voice was the voice from his deceased father. And when Jurgensen heard this, he was absolutely shocked. And soon, Jurgensen became quite curious. In fact, he became fascinated by this and he soon began conducting regular spirit recording sessions every single day. And he did it similar to how many paranormal investigators do today. He would turn on the recorder, ask questions, wait several minutes, then play back the recording. He claimed to have quite an amount of success with this technique. He claimed that during these sessions, he not only made contact with his father, but also with his late wife and even his mother. And Jurgensen claimed that of all the spirits, his mother was the most active and she would often communicate messages to him. And after a while, these recording sessions started to become a bit of an obsession for Jurgensen. And it got to the point that Every single night, he would leave his tape recorder rolling, and when he woke up in the morning, he'd rewind it, play it, and listen again. Well, soon, word of Jurgensen's spirit recordings soon got out to the media, and he soon kind of became a bit of a local celebrity. And in fact, it's often Jurgensen who gets the credit as having recorded the very first spirit voice. However, the first known spirit voice recording goes a bit further back than the 1950s. In fact, even Nikola Tesla and rival Thomas Edison had both at one point made claims to the media that they were working on a spirit communication device. Now, Tesla had 
not only claimed that he was able to create such a device, but he also claimed that it did indeed work. And as much of a genius and forward thinker as Tesla was, it could be said that if there was anybody out there who could have created such a device, it would have been Tesla. However, to this day, we have never really found any evidence that such a machine existed. Now, Thomas Edison created an absolute media frenzy when he announced in the 1920s that he had come up with a device which would allow a person to communicate with the spirit world in real time. His invention is often known today as the ghost phone. The invention was touted in the newspapers as being a telephone to the afterlife. And Edison allegedly said in his announcement that his device did not operate by, and I quote, any occult, mystifying, mysterious, or weird means employed by so-called mediums, but by scientific methods. And he went on to say, I am engaged in the construction of one such apparatus now, and I hope to be able to finish it before very many months pass. Now this Edison ghost foam has a lore of its own. There are all sorts of stories surrounding this device. It's almost like a legend in itself. There's even a story about a Frenchman who claimed to have discovered a forgotten journal of Edison's in, of all places, a thrift shop. And in this journal, it supposedly detailed his experiments with the device in his laboratory and the results he got. However, like with Tesla, there is no concrete evidence that such a device was ever created. And with Edison, let alone even tested in Menlo Park. Now here's the thing about Thomas Edison. Edison was quite quick-witted. He was really known for his sense of humor. However, he was also incredibly dry with his humor. He would deliver it in such a serious and deadpan tone that it was really difficult for the people around him to determine whether something he said was in jest or if he was actually being serious. So many believe that Edison's ghost phone was actually a joke and that he was just kind of toying with the media. Now, Edison during his time was a known and sometimes very outspoken critic of spiritualism. And it could have been that this was like his own little jab at the movement and its theatrical mediums. Now, oddly enough, though, the very first spirit recording did come from Thomas Edison, but not by the man himself, but via one of his company's inventions, the Edison gramophone. So here is the story of the very first known spirit voice recording. Born in 1865, Valdemar Borgars was a well-known cultural anthropologist. He was best known for his extensive studies on the tribes of Eastern Siberia 
Now, if you're not familiar with the term, the job of a cultural anthropologist is to study cultural variation or differences among humans. That means they study human societies, their cultures, and their development. Now, most cultural anthropologists spend a vast majority of their time studying indigenous cultures. And Valdemar Bargaras was particularly fascinated by the culture of the Eastern Siberian Chichki tribes. And he'd gained a really big amount of notoriety due to these studies. In particular, he was captivated by their language and their songs. And he spent a vast majority of his time living among these people, trying to embed himself into their tribe. Now, Valdemar was always looking for ways to capture this tribe in its purest form. He used photography extensively and also careful note-taking in his journals. However, the one thing that really frustrated Valdemar is that he lacked a proper way to really capture the unique language and songs of this tribe, which he really felt was one of the more captivating elements of these people and their culture. Now, the phonograph had been around for a while at this time, but it wasn't until the late 1800s that a durable model came onto market, one that would be able to withstand all the bumps and jumps that Valdemir's travels would put it through. And in 1899, Valdemir finally got his hands on a gramophone, and he planned to bring this along with him to his next trip to record all the wonderful songs of the Siberian tribes. However, as excited as he was, this trip ended up being postponed, as he was soon contacted by the American Museum of Natural History, and he was given the grand honor of being invited to join the Jessup Expedition. Now, the point of this expedition was to study the tribes of the North Pacific Coast. And since this was an incredible opportunity, Valdemir accepted, and he soon set out to America, leaving his gramophone behind. Well, in 1901, the American expedition had ended and Valdemir returned to Siberia. And there, he once again embedded himself in the Chichki tribe. He had a deep love, a deep respect for the people. And in return, he gained their love and respect as well. Now, while Valdemir was staying with the tribe, he became especially fascinated by the shamans and how much of the Chichki culture revolved around them and the rituals that they would lead. Now, one day, Valdemir was shocked when the shaman invited him to attend a shamanic ritual. Now, this is a really incredible thing because most outsiders were absolutely forbidden to attend. So this was an incredible honor for Valdemir, and it really showed how much the tribe loved and respected him. And even more amazing, is that Valdemir was given permission by the shaman himself to record the ritual on his gramophone. Well, Valdemir was incredibly excited. And as he rushed to the scene with gramophone in hand, 
he sat it down just as the gentle pats of the drum beats began. And Valdemar began excitedly turning the crank of his gramophone, eager to record every single sound. He was so eager that he filled up several records with amazing sounds and songs of the shamans. And Valdemir was just over the moon. And when he got back to his quarters later that night, he couldn't wait to play these records back and listen to the sounds he recorded. However, as he was listening to one of the records, he jumped out of his seat. He was almost knocked down, completely shocked by what he heard. There on the recording was something incredibly bizarre, something incredibly startling and strange. He heard other voices on top of the original recording. Strange voices. Voices that were definitely not there during the time of the recording. What's even stranger is that some of the voices were speaking English, and some of the voices seemed to be speaking Russian, his native language. However, it wasn't just those misplaced voices that startled him so much, but really the way they sounded. They sounded strange, garbled, and they just really left him with a very uneasy feeling. Valdemir had unknowingly just picked up the very first recorded instance of an otherworldly voice, or as we call them today, an EVP. Now, if you're curious to know what this EVP Valdemir picked up sounded like, here is a clip of what Valdemir heard. In this clip, you'll hear the shaman and some other voices. One voice supposedly sounds at first like it's mocking the shaman. Then you can hear it mumble as if it's agitated. And then it sounds like it just suddenly laughs the experience off before it fades out. Now the clip itself, in all of its entirety, is just strange all around. And unfortunately, I cannot tell you with certainty which of those voices was the shaman and which of those voices was the spirit. I cannot tell you if it was the loud voice that was the shaman and the softer voices were the spirits or if it was the other way around. I cannot even tell you with certainty that this just wasn't some sort of elaborate hoax. That, I will let you decide for yourself. Now, legend has it that Valdemir was so taken back, so shocked by those mysterious sounds that he needed answers. And he turned to the scientific community 
to help him determine the source and cause for these strange sounds. He allegedly sent copies of these records all over the world, including the United States. And it's reported that all sorts of scientists studied these recordings, even the most well-known physicists of the time. And reportedly, nobody, nobody out there was able to provide Valdemar with an explanation. Now, during this time, during the early 1900s, this is also when that spiritualist movement was rapidly sweeping the world and gaining immense popularity. Now, like we talked about before, this movement was mainly about spirit communication, proving there was an afterlife by finding various ways of communicating with the dearly departed. And supposedly, after a while, Valdemar had become convinced that he had captured on these recordings the voices of spirits trying to reach out and communicate. And it's said that not too long after this, he reached out to the spiritualist community and many spiritualists began having success doing the same thing Valdemar did, recording the voices of spirits using the gramophone. In fact, throughout the 1900s, as spiritualism swept Europe and swept North America, many of the followers were doing all sorts of experiments using the gramophone and successfully capturing the strange voices. Now, what's even more interesting is lore has it that many universities today, including the University of Michigan in the United States, still study those bizarre recordings of Valdemar's. And even to this day, they remain largely unexplained. There are some scientific explanations for EVPs. Most scientists regard an EVP as a form of auditory pareidolia. That is, interpreting random sounds such as static as voices in one's own language. You see, our minds are a funny thing. The mind is always looking for patterns, always trying to make sense out of the chaos that surrounds it. So one way the brain will do this is that it'll try to turn white noise like static into recognizable sounds. And it's not always voices either. There are other ways that the mind can turn those white noise sounds into something recognizable. For instance, for me, at night, my mind will turn the humming sound of a box fan or a heater into music, specifically symphonic music. So while others might hear the steady hum of a fan, my brain will transform that noise into an orchestra, which I am incredibly thankful for. As I must say, I find orchestra sounds far more soothing and conducive to sleep than having to hear strange disembodied voices. Now, science also credits the prominence of EVPs to pseudoscience, perpetuated by popular culture. And you can kind of see how that could be true 
especially if you've ever watched any of those popular ghost hunting shows that like to appear on places like the Travel Channel. There'll be a sound clip that, without context, just sounds like static. However, once they tell you what they believe that voice to be saying, and then repeat the sound and provide you with the subtitle, about 90% of the time, you will then clearly hear the voice saying that yourself. So what was the difference between the first play of the clip where you heard nothing and the second play of the clip where suddenly you heard a voice? Well, it's the suggestion of what it said. Once they suggested that, once you heard them say that, your mind was ready to categorize all that chaos and interpret it into what it was expected to say. So, mainly, scientists believe that when it comes to spirit voices, it's essentially all in our heads. Now for myself, I tend to lead towards both theories being right. I have recorded strange sounds that were quite clear that I cannot explain. But I have also encountered those so eager for an experience that they will interpret any bit of white noise as a voice. So I think it just works both ways. So which theory do you side with? Do you think electronic voice phenomena is real? Or is it just that case of our minds trying to create patterns and make sense of that random background noise? Well, it's no surprise how something like spiritualism can take off during times of crisis. Fear or curiosity of what comes after death is just a natural part of the human condition. It seems as though we're just hardwired to seek answers and validation about death's mysteries. What happens after death is the ultimate question. It is the ultimate mystery. Do we simply fade away into an eternal darkness? Or do we live on as a different form of ourselves? It's the one question that really transcends religious beliefs, cultural differences. It's that one question, that fear of losing ourselves, the fear of fading into nothingness is almost just too unnerving. It's too dark of a thought for most of us to even consider. And for many, such a thought can invoke immense panic, terror even, so much so that we're desperate to find comfort, desperate to cling to any evidence that death isn't truly the end. For some, they're willing to pay copious amounts of money to psychics or fancy gadgets to find just the slightest hint no matter how faint, that some part of us manages to transcend death and live on. And proof of the afterlife can be a pretty lucrative business. And that's where our next story comes into play. There is another popular spirit communication device that also has its roots with spiritualism. And that is the Ouija board. Throughout history, 
we humans have come up with a wide variety of clever ways to communicate with the great beyond. From elaborate rituals to pieces of cardboard covered with the alphabet, there are no shortage of ways we have devised to talk with the great beyond. Now, one of the most well-known methods of spear communication just happens to be that little alphabet-covered piece of cardboard, the Ouija board. It seems that almost everyone out there has a strong opinion when it comes to this little board. It seems to always strike a passionate nerve in people when it's brought up. Almost everybody has a story about this thing. It's part of what makes this board so interesting. It just has this way of transcending itself. It's no longer an object. It's a story. Now, most of us are familiar with the stories of those who have played the game, who encountered more than they bargained for, but very few of us are familiar with the board's first and most elusive story. It's history. So let's venture into the strange and twisted path that is the origin of the Ouija board. In the mid-1800s, after the end of the Civil War, the spiritualist movement exploded in America. And by the 1850s, seances and other forms of spirit communication were not only popular, but seen as a fashionable, accepted behavior. In fact, some of the biggest celebrities, highest paid people of the time were those mediums, those people that had that special power to be able to summon and communicate with the spirit world. And a lot of mediums worked their way into public favor by not so honorable means. Now, spiritualism was so in vogue back then that it was common for friends to get together in a home for some evening seance fun. It was very common to hire out a medium to lead the seance. In fact, that kind of lifted your social status if you hired on the medium to lead. Now, the very basis of spiritualism did revolve around mediumship. And the majority of the public believed that mediumship was a special gift. It was something that was bestowed upon a lucky few by the Creator. However, there was a growing branch of that movement that believed that mediumship, the ability to channel, communicate with the spirit realm, was something that all naturally possessed. And they believed, like anything else, it just required practice. One method of spirit communication that was becoming popular was the use of something called a spirit board, also known as a talking board. Now, the spirit board itself had evolved from two common methods mediums used at the time for spirit communication. It evolved from spirit writing and table turning. Now, spirit writing involved the use of a heart-shaped planchette. On the wider back end, it had two rotating casters, two little wheels attached to the bottom, and these would allow for fluid movement. On the narrower end, 
there was a hole that you would put a pencil through, and the very tip would be the third leg of the planchette. The medium would then put this on a piece of paper, place a hand upon the planchette, close their eyes, and would soon channel a spirit who would then guide the planchette, thus writing out a message from the great beyond. Now table turning, or as we commonly call it today, table tipping, involved the medium and those in attendance placing their hands upon a table. Then the medium would close their eyes, and when they had channeled a spirit, the spirit would communicate by tipping the table, creating these knocking sounds. So how it went is that part of the table would lift up and then clack, it would hit the ground again. And the number of knocks, the number of clacks that you got in a row was associated with the letter of the alphabet and messages could be transcribed. Although it took a very long time and the process was often kind of frustratingly tedious. Now the act of table tipping as a means of spirit communication was actually a direct response to the Fox sisters and the phenomenon their story created. Now the Fox sisters have an interesting little legend themselves and they were kind of like the darlings of the spiritualist movement at the time. The Fox sisters had solved a murder mystery by communicating with a ghost. So the story goes that the little house that their family had moved into was haunted and that the spirit would knock on the walls each night. Now eventually, the girls and their mother came up with a method to be able to communicate with the spirit. The mother came up with a way to match the number of knocks to a letter of the alphabet. And eventually, they communicated with the spirit and it told them the story of how it was once a traveling salesman. And that when it came to this house, the owner of the house had murdered them and stolen their money and that they had buried them in the basement. Well, curious, the girl's father started digging in the basement and sure enough, they found a skeleton. So it seems that it was true. The ghost had told them what had happened and the murder mystery had been solved. Well, after word got out about this, the Fox sisters became celebrities and they started touring all throughout the country, kind of parading their little techniques. So they would have the knocking noises and they'd be able to relay the messages. Now, most believe that when the sisters were on tour, the knocking noises that happened were a fraud. They were made up. It was just a way for them to earn a living, really. But the ghost story, as far as all accounts go, seems to be more truth than anything else. So spirit boards sought out to fuse together the best of both worlds, creating a more efficient and natural way to communicate with spirits. It featured a rectangular board with letters of the alphabet painted on it and a heart-shaped planchette, which was now pencilless. The planchette would be used to point to the letters in order to spell out messages. So in these early spirit boards, the planchette didn't have the hole in the middle. The little tip was like an arrow and the little tip would kind of point to the letter. 
Now in 1886, an article was written about this amazing talking board phenomenon that was taking the spiritualist camps in Ohio by storm. And as fate would have it, the article was nationally published and soon caught the attention of a Baltimore businessman by the name of Charles Kennard. Now Kennard immediately recognized the immense marketing potential of such an item. It would be a way to make spirit communication something that anybody could do. And as he saw it, why should mediums be the only ones to cash in on such a thing? And he also reasoned that, hey, he'd be doing the public a favor, especially the grief-stricken. He'd be doing them an incredible service by offering them a far more affordable means of communicating with lost loved ones. So in 1890, Kennard contacted and assembled a group of four other investors, whom together would form the Kennard Novelty Company, whose sole purpose would be to produce and market these talking boards. They chose to incorporate the word novelty into the name to combat any potential suits that might come against them if the board didn't work. In fact, none of the men were spiritualists or really had any interest at all in the paranormal. They were just a group of level-headed businessmen who recognized a great niche. However, lore has it that there was one person in that group who had some attachment to spiritualism. One of the investors, Elijah Bond, had a sister-in-law. Now, the sister-in-law was not only heavily into spiritualism, but also claimed to be a powerful medium. Her name was Helen Peters. And it's said that it was Helen who gave the board its iconic name. The legend goes that Elijah had gifted her with one of the prototypes, and supposedly, during its first use, Helen asked the board what it would like to be called, to which it responded by slowly but smoothly pointing to the letters O-U-I-J-A. And that's how the board got its name. And legend has it that Helen played a really crucial role in them securing the patent for the Ouija board. Now, since the men all knew that if they couldn't show the board in action in a really impressive manner, they probably wouldn't be able to get the patent approved. So, Elijah brought Helen to the patent office with him so that she could give an impressive demonstration of the board. Now it's said that the chief patent officer demanded that the board accurately spell his last name, something which was supposedly unknown to any of them. So they all sat at the table, placed their hands on the planchette, and to the patent officer's dismay, the planchette slowly pointed to all the correct letters. And as legend goes, that February morning in 1891, a pale-faced and shaky patent officer awarded the company a patent for their new game. One year later, the Ouija board was a resounding success, pulling in a handsome profit. And by 1893, 
The partners thought it best to sell off the company at a considerable profit while things were still going strong. And as they would have it, the company was purchased by a young man and Ouija stockholder, William Fold. Now, William here is often the one who gets the credit for creating the Ouija board, even though he stated many times during his life that he wasn't its creator. Now, it's said that Fold had a particularly interesting relationship with the Ouija board. He was said to have wholeheartedly believed in its power, and he would consult with it regularly. Much to the frustration of shareholders, William would often make business decisions based on messages the board gave him. He wouldn't go forward with things or build factories until the board told him it was a good idea. So he only built factories based on his Ouija board sessions. And oddly enough, he even claimed that the Ouija board had told him his future, including when and where he was going to die. And oddly enough, William died in the last factory that the board told him to build. For over 120 years, the Ouija board has always been in production and it has always been a good seller for the persons or companies who acquire it. And what's really fascinating about the board is the wide range of people who use them. We often think of teenagers or occultists when we think of the Ouija board, but really, Ouija boards are popular among people of every social class, education level, profession, religion, Everybody uses Ouija boards. Even more interesting is that sales will always peak during times of economic uncertainty and during times of turmoil. Those times when people seek guidance and answers the most, the Ouija board becomes a big seller. Now for most of its duration, the Ouija board was seen by most as a benign little helper, a benign oracle and instrument to communicate with loved ones who passed on, which is the complete opposite of what we think of the board now. So how exactly did the Ouija come to be the sinister thing that it is today? Well, since the 1920s, there were those who believed that the device wasn't communing with spirits, but with the devil itself. And during the mid-20s, the Catholic Church attempted to rally people against it, claiming that the board was used for black magic. There was even material published by the church where some doctors had supposedly claimed that using the Ouija boards could cause dementia. Now today, the Ouija board has become a bit infamous. Almost everyone has a Ouija story, and almost all of those stories are creepy. So why do these boards now seem to attract so many bad things? How did they go from attracting spirits of loved ones to being evil and throwing planchettes through the air? A lot of the credit can go to the 1971 novel, The Exorcist. Coupled with the success of its 1973 screen adaptation, the Ouija board was cemented in the minds of many as the sinister tool that 
opens portals to hell, inviting in evil. So perhaps a lot of those negative Ouija experiences happen because that's what users expect from it. They're either subconsciously or consciously seeking out the negative. Not all truly believe you're communicating with spirits. Many scientists believe that the answers being given to you when you're talking to the Ouija board is being given to you by your subconscious and that perhaps the board is an ideal tool for getting in touch with the subconscious. And it does make a lot of sense. A lot of creatives will use the board for this very reason, as a way to tap into the subconscious and further creativity. So what do you think about the Ouija board? Do you think it serves its original purpose as that mystic oracle, the spirit communicator? Or do you think it's just a fancy way for us to talk to ourselves? So whether or not you believe in any of these means of spirit communication, it's fascinating to see how much of an influence spiritualism and that movement during the 18 and 1900s had on our culture. These means of spirit communication have still stuck with us today. They're still in stores. We still see them on television. So it's fascinating to see how a movement that was so popular, yet whose glory faded, still sticks in our popular culture today. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you enjoyed listening at least half as much as I enjoy researching and writing about these topics.